Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nation Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering eight total conversations. Four on Saturday from episode 23, our discussion with Stephen Harrison about challenges and opportunities in Nash drug development. And Sunday, four more from episode 21, our discussion with EASL Vice Secretary Alexander Krag and Education Counselor Sven Franke about next month's EASL Congress 2023. This conversation focuses largely on the paper Challenges and Opportunities in Nash Drug Development that Stephen Harrison co-authored with Naeem Al-Khoury, Alina Allen, Julie DeBerg, and Mazen Nuruddin. The reason Stephen came on the podcast today originally was to discuss this article, which appeared in Nature Medicine Magazine this past March. When asked, Stephen summarizes the main message of the paper by amplifying on its title, and I quote, there are a tremendous amount of challenges we're faced with in drug development, but these are equally matched by opportunities. He talks about the pivotal role that AI-assisted digital pathology is likely to play in the transition from drug approvals and disease assessment based on ordinal histopathology to a future that relies on new generations of non-invasive tests. He lists four key areas where AI assistance can provide tremendous benefit. Diagnosis monitoring, response to therapy, predicting outcomes, and predicting magnitude of effect changes that link NITs directly to outcome measures instead of simply linking the NITs to biopsy results. As the conversation winds down, I ask Stephen whether he believes a specific subtopic or patient subpopulation will catalyze a deeper, broader understanding of managing NASH patients. Stephen points to patients living with type 2 diabetes, in part because of the high level of concomitants of these two diseases in the same population, in part because so many type 2 diabetics do have fatty liver disease, and in part because this brings endocrinologists into the discussion, and they have been working for years to solve similar kinds of issues better for their patients with diabetes. At the very end, the conversation begins to transition to our next topic, the challenge of high screen fail rates. The previous Friday's FDA advisory committee meeting took a bit of wind out of everybody's sales and, once again, asked us to look more critically at what a drug must do to succeed in trial and in parallel. What steps the research community and stakeholders can take to improve patient enrollment process, which is the positive spin on the phrase, reduce screen fail rates. Last weekend's episode 22 conversation with Jorn Schottenberg and Donna Cryer looked at this issue from one perspective, and this one with Louise Campbell and Stephen Harrison and me looks from a different one, somewhat different one at least. These are important issues if we are to provide patients and prescribers with the pharmacologic supports they will need to stem this growing pandemic of fatty liver disease, and we've got some top people commenting here. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Roger Green. So, Louise, one comment, question from you, and then we'll, we'll slide over to Stephen's paper after Stephen answers it, if it's a question. Louise Campbell. Yeah, no, I just agree with Stephen on all of the points that he's raised. I didn't actually attend the meeting because of the time. So, to be fair, he had been caught bits of it afterwards. And the main thing I'd have thought, it is about the resources. And yes, Jean and Manal can address that. They have a whole team of people that they allocate to be able to do this, the same as any leading hepatologist. And they have a team of nurses. They have a team of allied health that can do that. Also, if you're a clinical researcher requiring a large amount of input from your study staff, then that's going to extrapolate into care when we take it out. And I think for me, it would be a resource issue. And they have focused, in essence, on some of those application issues. And we need to take note of that. If you have a drug that needs that education, needs that maintenance to keep people on it and to keep people safe, then we really have to be planning for that following your study. And it needs to be planned for in the study as it becomes 
comes close to FDA approval because you just need a few patients not to have that level of support to really cause chaos and real serious issues out in the real health world. So I know it was disappointing, but actually without the resource, it was a safety mm-hmm. issue in the end. And I think safety, safety, safety comes out. And we certainly don't have resources to be able to implement that level of monitoring at the moment. So, Stephen, I looked at this paper and it reminded me in some ways of uh, a comment James Joyce made of page one about Finnegan's Wake, which he said, it took me 17 years to write it. It should take you a lifetime to read it. This is an awful lot of stuff put together in a pretty comprehensible way in not a lot of space. Stephen Harrison. You made a good point. I mean, this is 10 years, maybe maybe 20 years worth of living this day in and day out and trying to summarize both the challenges and then vis-a-vis the opportunities that exist in a rapidly moving field. To me, it's a little bit like the underwater Gulf Stream and Finding Nemo, you know, trying to, at what point do you jump on the ride? The other amazing thing is, Roger, as comprehensive and succinct as at the same time that we wanted to make this paper, the reality is in a year or two, it'll be out of date. Yeah, I was thinking that as I was reading it. And so I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you how long you thought of shelf life was, but I think you beat me to it, which is great. Uh, Louise, you were nodding. Thought, question, comment? Absolutely. As soon as we read it and as soon as we publish these, the, we, the field moves so quickly. And I think that's a challenge to, uh, certainly a challenge to everybody in drug development and uh, look for the next area. So Stephen, if this paper has a headline, what is the headline? The, the, the one or two sentences that really, you're really good at this. The one or two sentences that absolutely hit the heart of it. What would those be? I think the headline would be the headline of the paper, which is there are tremendous amounts of challenges we're faced with in NASH drug development, but those are equally matched by opportunities. And we have to give a tremendous amount of credit to people in this field that are courageous enough to step into the entropy that exists in NASH and try to make some sense out of a direction to move forward. And maybe we'll start to unpack that a little bit more at Easel this year in Vienna by some of the AI digital path that's coming out, some of the data that really is allowing us to see ground truth relative to what some of these drugs are doing. And you know, it's one of the things we hit on in the paper is how is AI digital path really trying to help us get there and help us move to the NIT space? I mean, I've made no bones about it. I think as we transition from ordinal histopathology to NITs, we will have to pass through an AI digital platform because we need to fully understand how effective our non-invasive tests are at both diagnosis, monitoring response to therapy and predicting outcomes. And predicting response, you know, using NITs to predict the magnitude of effect change that links not to biopsy, but links to an outcome measure. I think the AI technology is going to help us get there. Maybe that's a long-winded answer to your question, but I, I think at the end of the day, that's what this paper brings forward is a systematic description of the issues and then where the field is relative to those issues that I see as opportunities that will allow us to take the next step, the leapfrog step forward to the next set of challenges that we're going to be faced with. Because 
look, each challenge we have today, we'll find a resolution to it, but it'll bring forth new challenges and we'll have to have resolutions to those challenges. That's just the way science is. You know, when we do a study, we try to answer a question, but in answering that question, we usually generate three or four or 10 more questions. Mm -hmm. And that's how we begin to unpack and unravel and drill down on pathogenesis and our understanding of the disease that allows us to say, look, this is a very heterogeneous process. There's microbiome. There's immune system dysregulation. There's genetic influences. There's environmental influences. All of this is manifest in what we see on the liver biopsy, but it could be wildly different for 10 patients at the same time. And and how do we unpack each of those patients and provide the appropriate therapy and treatment they need? That's something we aren't even near tackling right now. We're still at the early stages of trying to get our first drug approved. And I think that's where this paper is helpful to sponsors, to regulators, to physicians, clinicians, and patients is where do we today and what are some of the mitigating strategies we're putting in place today to allow us to take that next leap forward and our understanding and management of patients with fatty liver. It's interesting you should say that because when I got started in this industry back when you were in third grade, because if you're 35 and I'm like 135, they had just broken past the idea that a beta blocker was going to be the solution to everything in hypertension. You know, the calcium channel blockers and the ACEs and everything else that eventually came out. Um, And they went from step therapy to individualized therapy and all the things that we're visualizing having to do here. I thought the paper did a really nice job of going far enough before you said, hey, kids, no one-size-fits-all solutions here, that it became completely clear, well, virtually obvious when you said it, where you placed it in the paper, but very much needing to be said. What do you think, or do you believe, will be the place we start to crack that code for real? I mean, in the paper, you talk about use of different kinds of tests and AI and, and genetics. Is there a specific subject or a specific sector that you're looking at that you think might either crack faster or crack cleaner than the other things we talk about these days? Well, I think the set of patients that are going to allow us to advance this field quicker is the diabetic population because that's the population where disease progresses much more quickly. In many of the studies, that's where we're beginning to see the biggest efficacy with therapy. And I think we understand more about diabetes in some ways than we do fatty liver. That's probably the area that will begin to make the bigger strides in. And remember also, we have endocrinologists that do this for a living that are also studying this intently. So it's not just one group of providers. There there are multiple different groups trying to tackle this issue. You know, one of the things I brought up in the paper was, and I want to come back to it because when we talk about challenges in drug development, one of them is this high screen fail rate that we're faced with. And that's often overlooked. We talk about, does the drug work? Does it not work? What's the safety? All the things we started out the conversation with with Intercept, not one of them was, you know what, we have an issue with screen fail rates. But inherently, that's a major limitation to sponsors wanting to come into the space and develop drugs because what high screen fail rates lead to very quickly is the high cost of clinical trials and drug development in this space. It's lost on no one that a phase three trial is not a single trial in NASH. Look at Madrigal. There are four phase three clinical trials in NASH, right? Why? Well, look at Regenerate. There was one. 
All right. So there was limitations on the breadth and depth of safety data. There are limitations on getting to an outcome. There were limitations on non-invasive tests that were done in that trial. So reading the tea leaves, you know, Madrigal is like, okay, let's let's generate a lot of NIT data. Let's generate a lot of safety data, not just one year data. Let's roll them over into a second phase three trial and get an additional year of safety data. Let's put 180 well compensated cirrhotics on drug, not for one year, but let's get as many of them to two years as we can. Let's do a registration trial and let's do an F4 outcomes trial, right? So it's incredibly expensive to do this. And these screen fail rates uh, are 80 plus percent. One of the tables in my paper was just kind of a highlight. I thought it was interesting that nobody's ever really published on where patients screen fail in NASH clinical trials. And we have thousands and thousands of patients in our summit network to draw from. We begin to make these types of statements. And it's, it's convincing. 30 to 35% of people screen fail after they sign consent and draw labs. Some of the most reasons, most common reasons for screen failing on labs, A1C, hemoglobin A1C. You know, most studies, you have to be less than nine and a half. Well, there are a lot of people that have values higher than nine and a half. They're uncontrolled diabetics. What about GFR? Low GFR kicks a lot of people out. A lot of times we build in pre-screen strategies to try to minimize screen fail rates on liver biopsy. So we use fibroscan as a pre-screen. We use AST, other liver chemistry test, and they screen fail because those values are too low. And so that's 35%. Then we get to MRI. A lot of people do MRIs. A lot of sponsors do MRIs as one of the inclusion criteria. And even with our best technology, even with pre-screen strategy using CAP, controlled attenuation, as a pre-screen, we're still screen failing around 20% of those patients. That's on top of the 35% that screen fail for labs. And then finally, we get to liver biopsy and we're seeing 50 to 60% of patients screen failing there. When you roll all that up, that's a huge amount of screen fails. So, you know, that's a challenge. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, Jeff Lazarus will join Yorn, Louise, and me to review this weekend's Innovations in Natural Care Conference that Jeff and Yorn are chairing virtually as I narrate this. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.